Uh, you guys can be seated. Peter, beginning in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or as governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is gracious, this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of our God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued trusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Let's pray. Or I'm sorry, I invite the uh, children to um, Children's Church and Kathy meets you at the back. And so... As they're going, let me uh, open us in a word of prayer. Oh, high King of heaven, our treasure you are. Would you remind us of that on a moment-by-moment daily basis, that you are our supreme treasure. You are the treasure that won't fade, it won't rust, it won't go out of warranty, it won't fail, it won't need new batteries. Lord, your, your reward, you as our reward, will endure for now and through eternity and will never cease to satisfy. Thank you for being our reward, Lord. And Father, in this world, we will have sorrows. And uh, Lord, we, we certainly do. We, we're aware of the problems that we're facing. Father, I pray for um, Daniel Holmquist again. Thank you for the uh, progress that he's made with the tumor shrinking and, and uh, Lord, with um, the, the uh, cancer in his, his kidneys uh, or in his liver. Lord, we pray that you would bring healing to all of that. And Lord, we pray that through this difficulty through the pain and the suffering, Lord, that Daniel would be modeling to his church and to those around him who don't know you, what it means to follow Christ, to endure patiently the suffering that we that comes upon us. And so, Lord, we ask for his healing and his speedy recovery. And Lord, in the meantime, we pray for grace on him and his family as they endure, and his church as well. 
Father, we thank you for um, Bob Burris's safe return to the United States after uh, training pastors in Africa. We pray, Lord, that the work he is doing will have just phenomenal consequences, that it will uh, be multiplied as he's training these pastors who will train their people who will trust you more, who will worship you more fully. And Lord, we just can't imagine what that will look like echoing down through the ages. And we pray again that you would uh, continue his work and, and bless him. Father, thank you so much for his safe journeys to and from. And uh, we pray that you'd continue his, his work there. And Lord, again, we ask for the end of the conflict in Ukraine. Father, that by your grace, it might not spill over into other nations. Uh, Lord, that Russia would find a way to uh, retreat, to end the war, and to feel like they're not losing face. And Lord, we pray for the Ukraine people that, um, that through this difficulty, Lord, you would spark revival, that many of the Ukrainians would um, not only feel a patriotism for their homeland and a defense for that, but Lord, that they would see a, a, a need for something even bigger than, than uh, their homeland. And Lord, that you might, through this faithful witness of your church, preach that message to many who don't know you there. Uh, Lord, would you be with us now as we turn to your word, and we, uh, we need you, Holy Spirit, to help us to understand, to apply, and to believe this, and um, so be with us in this, this time we, uh, we study your word, and we ask this in Christ's name, amen. So has anybody ever worked for a bad boss? Never, right? Nobody has. I've worked for a couple, one or two here and there. Um, I want to tell you about another one. So there's a woman named Debbie Stevens who started working for the Atlantic Auto Group as a clerical worker in 2009. Uh, the, the Atlantic Auto Group is a billion-dollar business that has several car, car dealerships in the Long Island area. So it's a big deal. It's not this little rinky-dink thing. While Stevens was working there, she got to know a woman named Jackie Baruca. And uh, when Stevens left the company about a year later, um, but she came back. She stopped by to, to talk with Jackie because she knew that Jackie was having medical problems. And um, it, that included that Jackie needed a kidney transplant. Her kidney was, was failing. And so uh, Debbie, being a very generous kind of person, said, hey, if, you know, if it doesn't work out for you, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'd be willing to donate a kidney to you. And so um, Baruch told her um, that she would keep that in mind. And she said, uh, you never know. I may have to take you up on that offer one day. Um, she had a, a donor lined up, but it turned out that it uh, didn't quite work out. So about a year later, uh, Debbie had moved back to the area, and uh, she went back to the Atlantic Auto Group and asked for her old job back, and, and Jackie Baruca gave Debbie her job back. Um, two months later, Baruca called Stevens into her office and said, my donor was denied. Were you serious about what you said? Debbie said she was, and she donated a kidney so that her boss would be able to recover. Well, during the operation on, on Debbie, um, the surgeons accidentally nicked a, a nerve. And what happened was after the operation was over, she had serious pain, real discomfort in her legs and digestive problems for a while. Uh, so while Jackie Baruca was at home recovering from her surgery, Debbie was pressured to go back to work because she'd been away from the office too long. So after about three days of trying to get back to work, uh, Stevens called in sick and said, I can't come. So Jackie Baruca, her boss, who is recovering at home with a new kidney, uh, said, what are you doing? Why aren't you at work? And Stevens explained to her, I'm sick. I don't feel well. I've, I've this, I'm not recovering well from the surgery. And she said, you can't come and go as you please. 
people are going to think you're getting special treatment. So when Baruka returned to work sometime later, um, Stephen's office and overtime were eventually taken away from her, and she was demoted and moved to a dealership 50 miles from her home in a high-crime neighborhood that her co-workers jokingly called Siberia. So because of the mental anguish and the physical pain, Debbie Stevens consulted a psychiatrist, and her lawyers wrote a letter to the company, and she was fired. Stevens said that she really had no regrets about the kidney, though. So here's an example of a bad boss, right? I'm going to donate to you my kidney, and then you're going to fire me because I'm not springing back to work. That's bad. I've never suffered that. I've never had to go through something like that. But what Peter is going to remind us of this morning, what he's going to teach us is something that's, that's a bad boss, but far worse, something even more evil than that. Now, remember where we're at in this, um, in this part of the book. The, the main theme here is he's, he's told us, uh, live honorably among the Gentiles. And the reason he said to live honorably among the Gentiles is he said, so they might glorify God in the day of visitation, which is kind of a curious phrase. But remember a couple, a couple of weeks ago when I talked about that, I said that that idea of glorifying God on the day of visitation, those words kind of have a sense of they could be saved. It, it could be that your honorable behavior before them could bring them to repentance. As a matter of fact, next week when we look at husbands and wives, that's one possibility. Wives, if you live honorably before your unbelieving husbands, you could save them. They, they could come to faith through you. So that was this kind of the setup. And I said, now, the next thing that Peter tells us is be submissive to all human institutions. And where he's going to go over the next couple of weeks, he's going to walk us through some examples. And so this week, he's going to pick probably the hardest, the worst example he can find to start out with. So verse 18, slaves, be subject to your masters. It's the worst possible setting that he could begin with. And he's going to hold this up to us and explain it. So the, just a heads up as we go through this, it starts by addressing slaves. But by the end of the section, it's pretty clear he's talking to all Christians. So he's holding up this example. That brings up a really difficult question here. And that is the question of slavery in Christianity. Um, when the world embraced slavery, they thought Christians were odd because we were welcoming and inclusive of slaves. When the world now doesn't embrace slavery, they look at Christianity and say, well, you enabled it and you're cruel and you're mean. So it has been hard for Christians when it comes to the issue of slavery. So what I want to do is take just a few minutes to kind of go through a biblical view of what is going on with slavery. Uh, is, it, is it God's purpose? Is it God's point? How is the church supposed to respond to it? So context is really necessary when we talk about the issue of slavery. Let's go all the way back to the beginning. God created them, male and female, Adam and Eve, he made them. There was no third one to serve them. So slavery was not a creation order. It wasn't something that God had ordained in the garden. As a matter of fact, Adam and Eve were supposed to work in the garden. They weren't supposed to have, go conk somebody on the head, drag them in and make them work for them. So slavery was never part of that. Slavery was a human creation, a human invention. And the next place that we see slaves mentioned in the Bible is Abraham owned slaves. So in Genesis 15, God told Abraham his offspring would be servants or slaves in Egypt. Um, later, when, he has, when, when he's trying to have a child, 
um, Sarah gives her slave to him and says, have a child by her. And this is from Galatians 4. Uh, Paul explains it this way, for it was written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by slave free. So Hagar was his slave. And then in Genesis 24, he sent his servant to find a, a bride for Isaac. Well, that word servant can be slave. He may have sent a slave to go find a, um, a, a wife for Isaac. So slavery had come up between the creation and the law somewhere. Um, it just kind of fits with the way humans are bent is the strong survive. If I can overpower you and make you my slave, then you lose. And that's too bad. So how does God respond to this? He's, he's silent up until um, the law comes. But when the law comes, God begins to regulate this human institution of slavery. And so there's a couple of things that he says. If you're reading through the Bible in a year, you might be done with Exodus and heading into Leviticus. And you'll notice, start paying attention to some of the, the rules for slaves. Let me just highlight a few of them. Exodus 21, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve you six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free for nothing. God interrupts the institution of slavery. It's not perpetual. It's not eternal. If you take a Hebrew as a slave, they go free after seven years. Well, God also talks about how slaves are treated. When a man strikes the eye of a slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of the eye. If he knocks out the tooth of a slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of the tooth. So you're not allowed, God is saying here, you're not allowed to just beat these people senseless. If you damage them, you have to let them go. Well, what about non-Hebrew slaves? Deuteronomy 23, God says, you shall not give up to his master, a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. So if a slave runs away and comes to Israel, they are told they can't give the slave back. And not only that, they can't abuse the slave. So a little bit later on, God says, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge evil from your midst. So the idea of man stealing, going out and, and just grabbing somebody and saying, you're my slave now because I overpowered you. God says, no, you can't do that. And then finally, again, from Exodus, Exodus 21, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. That's much more broad than if you steal a Hebrew. So what you see is slavery starts sometime after the fall. And by the time we get to the law, God, instead of just saying, well, you know, slaves, okay, whatever, he begins to regulate slavery and say, there's a way to do this. And, and what's radical about this is the slave is treated as a human being. It's not just property, but as a human being. So what happens when we get to the New Testament? Again, the New Testament didn't tell people you can't own slaves. They didn't command the end of slavery. It didn't say that's, that's, that's to be done away with. Um, so why? Why is that? Is it because God thinks slavery is okay? Well, it's a little more complicated than that, I think. So in the early days of Christianity, Christianity was, was a haven for the marginalized. It was the women and the poor and slaves who were coming in to, to Christianity quite a bit. They were turning to Christ. Um, and it's because, the, the reason that they would do this is because in Jesus, there was this radical idea put forward that all humans are alike, 
So Colossians 3, for example, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, bar barbarian, scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. So this, the, the, in, the, the inbreaking of Jesus as he comes brings with it this radical idea that all humans are equal. Now, this was very foreign to this culture. Um, we are just used to human rights and saying that there are civil rights and human rights. Such things did not exist in the Roman Empire. The, the, the emperor could just order you executed because he felt like it one afternoon. And it wasn't because he was, and he wasn't troubled because all oh, this poor human being, he, he didn't consider other people human beings. They were lesser than him. So this is the idea that, that this is the way that Christianity is born into this. And Christianity comes and says, no, everybody's equal. This was, again, radical to the, the culture at the time. Um, about the second or third century, there was a, um, an apologetic letter written in, in uh, Latin. It was a fictitious debate between a Christian and a pagan. And uh, so at one point, Sicilius, the pagan, says, take a look at your gatherings. What are they made up of? Mostly women, gullible children, the majority of them from the, from the working class, not well-educated, mostly poor, and even slaves. Makes me laugh when I think how poor you are, barely enough to live on. So he's picturing, he's in, this is again a fictitious, uh, fictitious debate, but he's picturing what a Christian worship service is like. A bunch of losers. So this is who are coming in. This is who the losers are coming to. So if this is true, then why would Paul say, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7, were you a bondservant when called? Don't be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Why doesn't he say slavery is evil and it must end and all slaves should try to escape? Well, first of all, let me say, I don't know. I wasn't there. But I can think of a few possible reasons. So for one reason, first, the early church was dealing with a, a very different question at that time. It was how do we fit together? How do we take Jew and Gentile and bring them together, rich and poor, Roman and non-Roman, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free? How do we fit all of these together? And since slavery could be anywhere, Roman slavery, the way the Romans practice, it could be anywhere from brutal to something like an employment where you can't quit. Um, that just wasn't the pressing issue of the day for the, for the early church, the very first century. They were wrestling with how do we fit together? How does this new humanity come together? Second of all, there was this general belief in the early church that Jesus was going to return very soon, possibly within their lifetime. So the issue of freeing yourself from slavery just didn't feel like it was really a huge pressing issue because Jesus is going to come back and everybody's going to be free. So maybe that's what was part of it. Third that I thought of was that Christianity in those days, um, while the New Testament was being written, was a small new religion. It was emerging from Judaism. And so Christians lacked cultural and political influence. Remember what Sicilius said, you're a bunch of losers. So it's not like they could come out and protest or write a letter to their senator and say, we want to end slavery. This was just the environment that they lived in. But couldn't they abolish slavery amongst their own members? Isn't there a way that they could say amongst themselves, you can't own a slave? There's plenty of places we're going to hear today, it's slaves be submissive to your masters. There's other places that say, masters, treat your slaves well. Why doesn't the New Testament just say, hey, end the slavery thing? I think it's a very complicated issue. And, and with this broader scope uh, in mind, 
what we have to do is look at what does the New Testament really say about this? How does it handle it? And there is a place where in the New Testament, it does interrupt slavery. And it does it in a very subtle and, and, and interesting way. Philemon is a book that was written by Paul to a slave owner named Philemon. He owned a slave who apparently had run away named Onesimus. And so Paul writes a letter, hands it to Onesimus and says, now go back to Philemon, your owner. And, and it's kind of like, what? Why would you do that? But listen to what Paul says in verse eight. He says, accordingly, though I'm bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. So he's discussing the relationship now between Philemon and Onesimus. And he says, I'm bold enough to command you not to do what I want, but to do what is required. Required by who? Required by Christ. It's not Paul coming in with his own authority and saying this. So what Paul is saying is, I could tell you to release Philemon right now, but I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm going to do something better. What? Why would, he, why would he not command him? Why not just say, end it? Because the way God is working to deal with slavery is much more subtle. And instead of having a command, instead of having law to deal with it, he uses something that's much more powerful, love. He, he commands uh, uh, Philemon, consider who I've sent to you. And so instead of just following the command in verses 15 and 16, he says this, for perhaps is why he was parted to you from a while, or I'm sorry, for perhaps this is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. What, Paul, you're sending a slave back to, to be a slave forever? No, keep reading. No longer as a bondservant, as a doulos, as a slave. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, a beloved brother. What would end slavery? You could issue rules, that doesn't change a heart. Paul is heading right to the heart of the issue. I want you to receive Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant, but as a brother. And not just a brother you tolerate, a beloved brother. Beloved especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So here's what I think is going on. God is working to undermine slavery. He started back with the law. He was undermining the, the way slave, slavery was practiced in the ancient East. And now when we get to the New Testament, he's undermining it again. But in Christ, the undermining is not, here's the rules on how you treat slaves. Now he appeals to a common humanity. And he says, you have to love these people. So the, the, the Bible does it by addressing it through love. We are commanded to love God. We're commanded to love our neighbor. We're commanded to love our enemies. We're commanded to love each other. Where does slavery fit into that? It just doesn't have a place in it. So do you see how subtle, how, how subversive God's plan for dealing with slavery is? God is working to remove slavery by treating slaves as humans. That's how he's going to undermine it. Now, he does it slowly. He's, he's taking his time with it. But don't miss the fact that Jesus who though he existed in the form of God, emptied himself and took on the form of a servant. So God is painfully aware of what slavery is. Jesus took the form of a servant. He took the lowliest form. So what's going on is, is in the Old Testament, we get this beginning of this idea that you have to treat slaves in a, in a more humane way. When we get to the New Testament, it's now not only do you have to treat them humane, you have to love them. 
You have to treat him as a beloved brother. You have to love your enemy. You have to love your neighbor. You have to love them as you love yourself. And so the seed here is planted in rich soil. So what happened with this? Well, from then on, the church has got a really rocky relationship with slavery. We've done well, we've done poorly. But if you kind of trace the big scheme of things, the seed was planted in the New Testament and it comes to fruition as the church grows and multiplies and begins to take on more um, political influence in the, in the world. As the Western um, culture is now becoming more and more influenced by Christianity, the question of slavery, unfortunately, wasn't handled terribly well, but it was addressed. And so by the time we get to the 18th century, you get William Wilberforce, a brand new convert to Christianity, working the rest of his political life to end slavery, to say, we can't do this. This is wrong. And he did. He, he was able to end it. So the British were out intercepting slave ships. Now, the American church, we still have a black eye on this, and, and rightly so. The Puritans, who we, who we love to listen to and read and, and, and that kind of thing, they were, they were chaplains on slave ships, and not for the slaves, but for the crew. Um, Newton, uh, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace, was one of them. And he, after he was converted to Christ, it broke his heart because he saw what happened on these slave ships. We've got a bad history with it. We haven't responded well. But here's the point. God was working to address slavery. He's just done it very slowly over centuries. Why? I don't know. Because he's God and he has a bigger view of things and he knows how it's best to do it. But it's the same question comes up with, the problem of evil. If God is all good and all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? And that assumes there's evil in the world and God's doing nothing about it, which we know is not the case. There's evil in the world. God sent his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. He's addressing the problem of evil, but he's taking a long time to do it. And, and why? I, I'm not sure, but we're not comfortable with that. So Peter begins by saying, Slaves, be subjected to your masters. And that's where he starts. He picks the worst possible situation and draws that out and says, now here, here's what it looks like to be subjected to every human institution, to honor the, the emperor, to follow the rules, to do these kind of things. He says, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the slave is to be Subject to his master, not only the good and gentle, who wouldn't be subject to a good and gentle master? What that shows you is it wasn't all bad. As a matter of fact, the way Roman slavery worked was it could be brutal. You could be the bottom of the heap. You could get nothing. You could be beaten. But there were also slaves who were professionals, doctors, lawyers. There were slaves who made money, who, who, who were allowed to earn their own money and sometimes would buy their freedom. So it was a broad stretch of things. It's very, very different. So there could be good and gentle masters. Those are the easy ones to be subject to, but also to the unjust. The word for unjust there is where we get the word scoliosis. Crooked, bent, distorted. So do you see what, what Peter is saying here? He's not saying slavery is cool. Don't worry about it. He's saying there are good masters or some who are nice to you, and then the rest are crooked. They're disrupted, they're bent, they're distorted from what they're supposed to be. He's not saying slavery is good. He's just saying at this point, we have to be subject to it. 
So that's who he, we have to be subject to. Verse 19, he says, for this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. He's now beginning to move off of the specific case of slavery to something much broader. So this is a gracious thing. It's hard to translate. It's, it's an odd phrase in the Greek. And so you get a lot of differences. So the New International Version says it is commendable. The Christian Standard Bible says it brings favor. The King James says, I love this, it is thankworthy. That's a nice way. New Living Translation says God is pleased. So what's going on there? Well, the word there for a gracious thing is charis, which is where we get the word for grace. Now, when we talk about grace and we say God's grace to us in salvation, it is his unearned love for us, his unearned favor poured out on us. But the root of the word charis has to do with favor. And that's why you're, you, you see the, the translators reaching for, how do, we, how do we translate this? It is a favorable thing. It is, it is God's favor. It is something that God is aware of. It is a gracious thing. What is? The suffering? Suffering under a, under a crooked, a cruel um, master? It's a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Unjustly, again, crooked. Again, Peter is saying, look, if you're suffering, if you've done good and you're suffering, that is unjust. He is not excusing it. He's not trying to make it sound like it's no big deal. He says in verse 20, he says a similar thing. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So that's the idea is God is aware of this. As you suffer unjustly, as you are persecuted, as you're beaten for doing good, as you're called evil for doing what's right, God is aware of it. It's a gracious thing in his sight. He sees, he knows, he understands what's going on. He hasn't forgotten you. And, and that's what we need to remember because this is what it's going to be like. We're going to suffer. The reason Paul wrote or Peter wrote this to us is because it's a reality. So what he's saying is how we handle this is being mindful of God in it. We, we have to remember as the suffering comes on us, as the injustice pours over us, how do we have hope? Remember the theme of the, the, the series or the book of First Peter is hope in the dispersion. How do we have hope when we're suffering unjustly? Well, mindful of God. We're paying attention. We're saying God knows what's going on. He, he, he agrees with me that this is unjust. So that's how we have to do that. And then Peter in verse 20 says, well, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, you endure? Okay, so there's, there's an unjust suffering, and then there's a suffering, you lunkhead, you just had it coming. If you sin and you're beaten, there's no benefit in that. As a matter of fact, remember what Peter told us previously, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor or supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If you sin and you do evil and you get beaten for it, that, that's not praiseworthy. That's, you just had your lumps coming. So, so don't, don't think about that. There is a, an unjust suffering, and then there's a suffering. You just kind of had it. You know, It was your fault. He then goes on, but if when you do good, you suffer, uh, if when you do good, you suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in God's sight. So there is a place where in this crooked, distorted, bent world, we will stand and say, this is what God has said is right. And we will stand for that. And the world, which is now bent and twisted and says, no, evil is good and good is evil. They're going to come against us. 
And in those instances, that is a gracious thing in God's sight. God is aware of the suffering that we're going to face in that. So when we walk with God and when we choose to obey and we, we do good, we may be thought of as evil. When the world persecutes you for doing good, God notices. He is aware of that. So why doesn't he end it? Verse 21, for this you have been called. What? I've been called to be persecuted unjustly? That's the calling that I've received? That that can't be. How, How could God call me to suffer unjustly? Doesn't he want me to be happy? Don't I get health, wealth, and prosperity when I become a Christian? No, for this you have been called. You've been called to suffer. You've been called to suffer unjustly, and you have been called to endure sorrows in this life. Peter is going to tell us later on in in chapter 4, therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This sounds mind-boggling, but there's a huge comfort in this. You have been called to suffer. Those who suffer according to God's will. What this means is your suffering, the persecution you face, the accusations that are thrown at you are not outside of God's control. They didn't get past him. The, The pain that you feel, the suffering, the anguish that you're going through is not pointless. It's not useless. It's not something that, well, that's just the lumps. I'm sorry that came up that way. That's too bad. It is according to God's calling. It's according to God's purpose. In your suffering, in the trouble that you have in your heart, God has a purpose for that. So what Peter's telling us is since God has done this, now mindful of God in your sorrows, live honorably amongst the Gentiles. There will be something about the way you live that will be very different. Aren't you terrified of dying? Well, I don't want to die. That's not something I would choose to run out and do, but I'm secure in that. I know where I'm going. That will blow people's mind. Live honorably among the Gentiles. We can do that because we are mindful of God, and this is how we're mindful of God. This is the way that we, we latch into this. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Because Christ also suffered for you. God the Son took on a human form, took on flesh and blood, a reasonable mind, soul, and and, and a body that could bleed. Why? So that he could suffer for you. God is not lofty and removed from our suffering. He is involved right in the middle of it. Christ suffered for you. And here's the part that you've been called to suffering. You're suffering according to God's will. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. How on earth can I do this? He left you an example so you might follow in his steps. Jesus was fully human, except for sin, because sin is not, is an alien part of us. He was in every way a human being. He was also fully divine. The, the whole human, uh, God, godly nature dwelt in him. He had two natures. So when he's suffering, we're tempted to think, well, he just switched off his humanity and lapsed into his divinity and, and let it happen. He didn't. 
He fully suffered as a human being in all ways that a human being would suffer. And he did that trusting in God, and he left that for an example for us. He even warned us before he went to suffer. John 15, he says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If you keep my word, they will also keep yours. He left an example for us. He promised us that we would face persecution and suffering because the world is bent, it's twisted, it's distorted. So we are to suffer patiently. We are to endure through this. Verse 22, he committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. The greatest injustice ever taken place, the greatest injustice ever put on a person was put on Jesus Christ. And that's why Peter says this here. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. When reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Instead, like a lamb going to the slaughter, he remained silent. When, when the, the Sadducees and the, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin called him in and questioned him, he mostly remained silent before them. He didn't say, I, I'm going to get you. I'm going to zap you for this. When he's taken before Pilate on trumped up charges, the religious leaders of the day lied. And they brought him to Pilate and said, you've got to kill this man, a man they knew to be innocent. He looks at Pilate and says, you would have no, no authority if it wasn't given to you my, from my father. He told Pilate, I could call down a legion of angels right now, but I'm not going to. He, he shows us that he is going to suffer the injustice of it and not retaliate. And he did that as an example for us. So how can we endure? How can we, how can we put up with this? Well, we look to God and we say, there's more going on. The end of verse 22 says, he didn't threaten, he didn't revile, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So what he said is, I know that this injustice, this wave of injustice is pouring over me. I know I'm being sent to be crucified as a criminal when I'm innocent of everything. But I'm trusting myself to God. And it's God who judges justly. Here's the part that really blows your mind. Nobody gets away with anything. Every sin, every injustice perpetrated in this world will be dealt with either by the person who did it, suffering the pains of hell, or on Jesus Christ. So when Jesus is hanging on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing, what he was saying was the injustice, the sin that's about to be, that they're perpetrating on me right now, punish me for it, not them. He, he did this for the elect, for those who were his. Even as they might be nailing him to the cross, he's taking the burden of their sin because he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He set this as an example and his disciples got it. 
In Acts chapter 7, when Stephen begins his long, beautiful, redemptive historical sermon explaining the history of Israel's nation, and he gets to the application point, and he goes, you stiff-necked people, you have always resisted God, they stone him. So you know you've done application right when the people rise up and stone you. That's, that's a clue. What did Stephen say? At the end of chapter 7, he says, and as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen learned the example of Christ. He, he executed the example of Christ. He did exactly what Jesus did. He couldn't take the sins of these people on himself, but he could call out to God and say, don't hold their sins against them. After just saying, you are stiff-necked people, you have always frustrated God's purposes. He then says, Lord, don't hold it against them. Grant them repentance. This is what it means to live under persecution, under trial, honorably before the Gentiles, honorably before the, the non-believers. It's, it's, it's an amazing thing that's, that happens. So this is why Peter is telling us to do this. This is why he's reminding us to do this. What happens, though, when we don't? Remember, Paul goes before, the, is taken into the trial, and um, he lips off to the high priest. You whitewashed tomb. And he gets struck. And they say, you speak to the, the high priest that way? No, sorry. He, he messed up, and he knew it. He's like, I'm sorry. I didn't realize he was the high priest. So what happens when we mess it up? Because we're not Jesus. He's left us an example, but we're not going to always match it up. Listen to what Peter reminds us in verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins, our sins, in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So when we don't execute this perfectly, when we don't always bear patiently the, the, the unjust persecution that we face, the good news is he bore our sins in his body on the tree by his stripes. Now, now health, wealth, and prosperity folks will focus on you are healed. The emphasis Peter is drawing here is not on the you are healed. The emphasis is on he took stripes. He, he was beaten. That's the emphasis. That's where the focus is. What's the result of that? You are healed. So we have this hope. We have this place we can look and say, Jesus, I'm not doing this well. I don't feel like forgiving this person. I really want to throttle him right now. And Jesus is saying, I'm taking your burden on myself. Now, now you're free go try it again. Go struggle to do that. Our suffering is real. Our sorrow is genuine. And when we experience them, we don't act like Stoics and just go, well, I'm tougher than this, or I'm just going to take what's coming to me because you suffer and you have sorrow. It's, it's a legitimate, real thing. But we have to remember it's not pointless. God has appointed this for us. God has led us to this. Jesus came and set an example for us. He told us before he left, this is coming your way. And so what we have to do is when we suffer is to be mindful of God, 
to remember that. It doesn't make the suffering stop. It doesn't make it go away. It doesn't make the feelings feel better. It gives us hope, hope in the middle of this. It's still unjust. It is still wrong. If you do good and you're persecuted for it, don't feel like, well, that's not right. Yes, go ahead and feel that way. It's not right. That's exactly right. We are, we are not supposed to just kind of bat an eye at this. And the people who are persecuting us, somewhere deep in their soul, they know this is wrong. They, they know this can't be right. But they're so blinded and so twisted by sin. I, I, I think I've told you the story of Joseph Son before, but I got to bring it up again because it's so appropriate. Joseph Son was a pastor in, I think it was Czechoslovakia, under Soviet rule. And the Soviets came and uh, Ceausescu sent people in to arrest all the churches. And so the, the police came and they, they emptied his library, took all his books, and they arrested him. And they interrogated him, including torture. And the amazing thing was, at the end of the day, they'd let him go and say, be back tomorrow. And he was. He would go back to the police station the next day. And the same man would interrogate him again demand to know what he was, he's telling people who he knew. And it would involve torture and, and physical uh, pain. And then he'd release him and he'd come back. And one day, Joseph came in in the morning and the, the, the interrogator sat down and Joseph said, I have to ask for your forgiveness. And the interrogator went, what? He said, yeah. Last night, as I was praying for you, as I have been, I began to get angry at you and I really hated you for a moment. And I'm very sorry. I'm not allowed to do that. Can you forgive me? And it just blew the man's mind. When the whole thing was over, years later, after Ceausescu fell, after the Soviet Union fell, these two men met. And the policeman, who, as far as we know, never became a Christian, told Joseph, I always enjoyed my time with you. Not what I was doing, but there was something about you. And so that, please forgive me because I began to hate you, really resonated with him. I think that's a beautiful example of living honorably before the Gentiles. I don't know if I could do it. I, I, I'm not sure I would have the internal strength to do that. But there's hope because we have an example in Christ. And there are brothers and sisters around the globe who are suffering this way. We are blessed because in this nation, we don't suffer like that. We have a lot of freedom. Even with some of the goofy stuff going on, we still have a lot of freedom. And I can remember in the 90s, people saying, oh, it's coming to America. And I remember thinking, it's not... Not in my lifetime, not in the lifetime of my children. Now I'm beginning to question that assessment. It's getting a little weird. But here's the thing. What, what Peter is reminding us here is not, you will never suffer. Even in America, you will never suffer. What he's saying is, when you suffer, have this attitude. Which is not, I'm putting my foot down, I'm demanding my rights, and I'm an American, and by golly, you should do that. It is unjust for you to suffer, but don't let that be your full attitude of this is wrong and, and it's a violation of the constitution and I have my rights and this, that, and the other. It, you should demand those things, but you should also say, I'm not trusting in that. I'm trusting in my savior who left me an example. At the same time, don't go out and search for persecution. Sometimes people are persecuted because they're jerks. They just are. And if you're an ugly, nasty person and you suffer, what benefit is there in that? So we don't have to go out and seek suffering. We don't have to create suffering. 
We don't have to create persecution. It's going to come. It, it may not come to us. It may not come in the way that, that the Chinese Christians or the North Korean Christians or people in Saudi Arabia who believe in Jesus are. But that's not the responsibility of us. Our responsibility is when we see opposition, when we are called evil for doing good, that's when we have to say, what attitude do I have? How do I respond to this? Do I respond in kind by calling them names and telling them how terrible they are? Or do I suffer patiently like my Savior did? And I think that's the, the biggest point because we're called to suffer before the Gentiles in an honorable fashion. We're called to serve before the Gentiles in an honorable fashion. That's our responsibility. We're not responsible for how they respond. So if we stand up for unborn children and we're told you're evil because you're, you're, you're going to make these poor women, you're going to force these women to have children that they don't want. What about the child in the equation? That You're evil for doing that. We don't have to turn around and say, well, you're evil for, for promoting uh, abortion. What we can do instead is live humbly and softly and say, but what about the child? Those kinds of things. It's, it's the attitude I think Peter is trying to get across to us is how do we respond to the injustice in this world? We respond, but we do so with hope in God, not hope in our legal system, not hope in our rights, not hope in the, getting the right person in, in uh, Sacramento or in the White House. We do it by trusting that God, you're going to write this. And he will. He is the one who judges justly. And that's who we need to appeal to. That's who we need to trust ourselves to. Let's pray. Lord, we don't desire injustice. We don't want to perpetuate injustice. We don't want to be subject to injustice. But Lord, until you return and rule in perfect justice, it will be here. And so, Lord, let our hearts cry out to you to end it, to bring it to a close. And in this, this intermediate time, this fallen and broken world, may we trust ourselves to him who judges justly, knowing that no one gets away with this ultimately. Lord, I pray that you would use that truth, that gospel truth that Jesus died for us, and infuse that into our souls that we might have the right attitude to live honorably before the Gentiles around us so that in the day of visitation, they may honor you. They may glorify you. What a beautiful truth that you could save them and that our conduct might be part of that equation. Have mercy on us, we pray, Christ, and amen.